If all you're doing is amassing a collection of facts and algorithms and things and not actually putting them to use in some way and transferring them to some meaningful purpose, then I, it really feels like it's not really serious learning. In what ways are we expanding beyond the walls of the classroom, beyond the 55-minute period, beyond the batch processing of students to create a much bigger arena within which learning can happen? How are we rewilding the learning environment for young people and for adults? Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is John Watkins. John is the co-founder and co-director with Jal Mehta of the Deeper Learning Dozen, which creates a community of practice for superintendents who are committed to the transformation of their districts to support equitable access to deeper learning. He has over 30 years experience in consulting, coaching, designing, facilitating, researching, and evaluating in-school and school district improvement efforts. I'm really excited about this conversation because John brings in so much of what we've been talking about on the podcast and writing about on the blog. That is connecting with nature, thinking in fractals, living systems, and really thinking about learning, much like nature, of being a place that finds its essence and its strength and, and, and does so well when there's a certain amount of biodiversity. And thinking about di biodiversity in terms of the learner, in terms of the community, the classroom, and so forth. I think you'll find this conversation to be vibrant and exciting, but also down to earth. John does a wonderful job of bringing in the theoretical with the practical. In the meantime, I will uh, leave space for the conversation with John. Of course, you can check out our blog and podcasts and articles and so forth on www.coconut-thinking.design. Check out some great articles on www.intrepidandnews.com. Leave us comments. And here's my conversation with John. Oh, hi, John. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. We're really excited to uh, hear uh, some of your thinking and maybe some of your uh, different ways of how you look at schools and uh, maybe the history as well. I know you've, you've delved into that, the, the history of schools and how they've been organized since uh, the Berrien times. And uh, wanted to first start off with uh, the question, uh, who are you, what are your passions, and how do you try to make a difference? Uh, well, so uh, good afternoon, Benjamin here in Oakland. Um, um, you know, I've, I, um, I always tell it, the story sort of like this. I grew up in the first five years of my life, mostly living with my mother's parents in a small town in Eastern North Carolina. We were Southern progressive, um, politically involved people. My grandfather was a newspaper owner, small town newspaper owner, and he was one of the first white congregation. So grew up in a household where there's already a lot of political discourse around equity and, um, and, uh, what that meant in terms of social justice. My mother worked in social justice related organizations for quite a, uh, most of her, her career. Um, so, you know, I had that political background. I, I think, um, that gave me in some ways, um, a feeling that somehow I had a pass that I had learned about racism and I had learned about privilege and those things when I was a kid. And that made me a good white person. And, um, and it took many, 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 many years of people saying, hey, hold on, you know, there's still, you have a lot to learn here, dude. You're, you know, <laughs> so learning about white privilege, learning about my position in the, in the world and uh, what my choices would be around that um, was an ongoing struggle for me for many years. Um, I worked, my first career was as an outward bound instructor. And I think that really had a huge impact on the way I saw 
um, education, the way I saw the world, the way I saw myself, first of all. Um, uh, this notion that um, the powerful learning happens in a space where there is um, a complex and ambivalent environment and where the, that your actions have consequences in. You know, if you set up your tent wrong and you get wet in the rain, that's pretty interesting evidence for like, okay, I need to learn how to set up my tent better. And if you like follow the map wrong and you get six miles off of the route you're supposed to be on, that's pretty good consequence in terms of learning to read a map better, right? So I, I, I developed a sense of learning as a space where, um, you know, important things happened and you had a chance to engage with those things in a way um, that, that um, your learning was real and meaningful and that it was happening in a social space with other people, not, not you know, um, by yourself sitting in a study somewhere. Um, so I don't know, who am I? What am I passionate about? I would say I, I have been passionate about social justice and equity since I was a little kid. I've been passionate about um, what can be learned by being in outdoor spaces. I think I learned an awful lot about systems from being in the wilderness because the wilderness is one of those places where there are these beautifully obvious complex interactions among everything, right? And if you're paying attention, which is fun, you know, if you're curious and you pay attention, then um, you see these complex systems at work in, in really um, obvious ways. So uh, I think I'm passionate about um, um, service, being of service to humanity, to particular groups of people that I work with, to young people. Uh, I'm passionate about young people having a, a better um, educational experience than has been the case for most of the, the history of education. Yeah, so I, I, I realized somewhere in my teenage years that I was kind of a radical. No, I was truly a radical. I was, um, uh, I was interested in pretty much complete transformation of the social order that we lived in. Um, but I also realized that I couldn't do all of that. So I thought I would, I would focus on education because I seemed to um, uh, fit well within that system and understand how it operated. Um, so I really kind of made a commitment to changing um, the educational experience for young people at a pretty young age. And most of the work that I've done over the years has been oriented toward um, trying to recognize the wonderful, beautiful, strange, um, maddening ways in which young people operate when they have the chance to be themselves and, and learn you know, individually and collectively. So yeah, that, that's been my commitment. That's really what I care about. And you've anticipated our next question, which is um, the one that we ask every guest on the podcast, which is, how do you define learning? You know, I ask this, but I ask people in workshops that I do quite often, I say, think about something that you really deeply learned that you were really passionate about learning. And what was that, what was that process like for you? I, to me, learning is um, either you're thrust into a situation where you have to learn something in order to, to survive really. In a, and you can define that, that notion of survival in a lot of ways, or you choose to be in a situation where there's something really powerful that you have the opportunity to learn. And you, you know, you bring your curiosity to that. You bring your whatever prior understanding you might have had about that thing to that space. You, you um, try to figure out what resources you might have, whether that's within yourself or with other people. Um, and 
you engage with that thing, often it means like you have to, it's a very iterative process, right? You have to try something um, and you try it and you're terrible at it. Uh, which is to say that learning has a lot to do with practice, right? You practice something, um, you're terrible at it. Um, maybe then you give up or maybe then somehow you either find the resources within yourself or somebody else encourages you to keep trying again. So you iterate, uh, you get feedback from the environment or from the thing you're trying to do or from other people, um, you get better. Um, you have times when it feels like you're never going to get there, you know? So it's this very organic process of like curiosity and persistence and, um, developing of, of skill around things. Um, uh, and along the way, I think you, your sense of yourself changes, right? So as you engage with the world around learning things, your sense of who you are develops your, your sense of who am I in this, in this learning space? And, and if you're in a setting where you really are able to learn, you're also doing a lot of creating. You're not just like passively receiving information and then um, um, processing it in some sort of subterranean way and then turning it into knowledge. You know, you are actually creating learning and knowledge in, in the world, in yourself, with other people as a part of the process. And I th and I think it is like it's very much about developing, deepening your sense of connection to yourself, your connection to the people around you, your connection to um, people who might be your mentors or your, um, who might be apprenticing you into something or whatever, those, those sort of um, um, slightly more experienced people in your life might be. And then um, uh, the, your sense of connection to the world, because really, um, if all you're doing is amassing a collection of facts and algorithms and things and not actually putting them to use in some way and will transferring them to some meaningful purpose, then I, it really feels like it's not really serious learning from, from, from my point of view. So there's like joy and play and there's rigor, right? There, and there's challenge um, and there's um, um, what happens when you grapple with things that are beyond your comprehension and it's so, so there's struggle there's and one hopes that that struggle is productive in, in, in some way um, and there's lots of conversation with other people with texts with the world and then you know you hope that there's some way that you can apply that to some greater purpose than than just the thing itself and and there's a lot of words that come out here connection understanding identity, relationship, others, self, purpose. The one word that stood out for me is action. All, all this is terms of acting upon the knowledge. And as you mentioned, not having it just be a base of knowledge in your head that just sits there, which is, which, which is if you don't use it, then it might as well not exist. Um, so, but, but that action is what, what, what takes it to, what makes learning, I don't want to say deeper learning because that sometimes gets thrown out. I know, I know that's something that's important to you, but I don't want to um, cheapen that term. Uh, but but certainly the action towards that purpose and others and as you said serving others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think action is um, an essential aspect of learning. Uh, I I think um, we are embodied beings, right? We have hands and feet, and 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 uh, we move in the world and we engage in the world. And um, so much of our learning uh, both happens through action and contributes to the possibility of action. Right, and that action um, can be as simple as I mean, one of the one of the things that I've done over the past two years of 
COVID, um, uh, we bought a house at the beginning of COVID, a small house in a sort of unassuming middle-class neighborhood in Oakland. And the front yard was just really ugly. Um, <laughs> and I, I decided that I was gonna build some rock walls. I've never built a rock wall. I know nothing about building rock walls, um, but I started to think I had a few rocks they were just sitting around and I started to say, well, what if I like put in a little retainer curve here and, oh, this rock might fit on top of this rock. And, oh, look at the colors of these together. It's pretty nice. Let's try that. Oh, and I need to put something like that. I need to have a way of like water draining through. Oh, there's a YouTube video about that that says you put a little, you know, gravel in the piece of like perforated pipe. And so, um, and then I ended up ordering three and a half tons of this beautiful sort of stained granite. Um, boulders about the size of a head um, and and took on this project that I started to call my slow fun project, which consisted of one rock at a time building a series of retaining walls in the front yard. And I spent a, pretty much a year and a half in that project. Um, and I've learned along the way how to build a rock wall. Um, I've learned how to, to make curves that are that look organic in the same sort of playfully moving around the yard instead of like straight lines. Um, and it's all been uh, a series of like picking up rocks, bringing them to the front yard, finding a space where they seem to fit with other rocks, turning them until they fit in the right way, placing them there, and then, you know, slowly accumulating what, a, what becomes a wall over time. And one of the things that, that, you, like in your description, it, it is about trying, figuring it out when you need it. You 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 work it, maybe maybe fail, maybe succeed. And when you fail, you brought up YouTube. And one of the things that we've been thinking about is this idea that with the pandemic, or actually just technology, totally. But but uh, but the acceleration with the pandemic is that this is um, the first time that students have been able to realize their dream, which is to turn down the volume on their teacher and, and, and put it on mute on <laughs> many occasions. And it happens. <laughs> and, and, it's, yeah, yeah. and so now they're able to do that. You're, you know, I'll put it on mute. Um, and, and what I'll do in the meantime is go on YouTube and figure out exactly what I need. And that might be for whatever purpose. It might be because they want to do something on gaming. It might be because they want to build something. It might be because whatever it might be. But, but now, and, and this is something you talk about networks. Now we have a situation where we have not only the technology, but the habits of saying, if I want to figure it out, there will be someone on YouTube who has done a fantastically curated, wonderful video. And if and if I don't like that one, I'll go to the next one. And, and that's how I could get learning, as opposed to being captive for 45 minutes in a classroom. How does that change everything? And specifically, how does that relate to um, what you have written about, about this bureaucratic Viberian system of schooling? So there's three um, immediate thoughts I have about what you just asked, and one um, bigger scale thought that sort of goes to the last question, part of the question you asked. So the, the three things that come to mind immediately are, um, first, that we often think of learning as, um, we traditionally think of learning in this kind of directionality that comes from somebody who has some kind of knowledge to a learner, right? And it's the, it, the agency is on the part of the person who's bringing that information, or we call it knowledge, it's not just information, to the learner's head. And, and I think um, what's really the case is that the agency starts in the head of the learner or body of the learner, 
and um, seeks out things that they need in order to help them learn what it is that they are excited about or passionate about or just interested in learning, right? You pick up a book to read it and, and that you are bringing something to yourself. And I think that's not just only true of young people in classrooms. I think it's very true of how teachers learn. Like you're in the middle, like I was saying about the rock wall, I'm in the middle of a rock wall. I don't, I don't know something. So I go to YouTube to look about it, uh, up about it, or I like find somebody in my neighborhood who's working on a rock wall and ask them about it. But there's this sense that the, that the directionality is, comes from my own agency rather than somebody else trying to impose some kind of information or ideas on me, right? So that's the first idea that I think is really important here. And, and um, um, yes, COVID has given us the opportunity to open up the classroom in ways that many teachers hadn't been able to do before and all of a sudden were forced to do, which is to start figuring out what do you do when you're trying to teach online and, and how do you engage kids who Traditionally, you you had this box you can put them in, and at least they are, you know sort of are required to show up there, um, and then so you have some kind of like control over the situation. But all of a sudden, you're on you're on, you know, Zoom classrooms, and you have to think in a really different, which I think is the right way, um, about your different way about how kids get engaged, which is you have to do something that they find engaging <laughs> and meaningful, and they have to want to do it because otherwise their screens off and. You know, there's cameras off and their microphones off and they're doing something else, right? So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, um, teachers that I know who really think a lot about this um, often think that, that the classroom can be a very complex um, ecosystem. And in that ecosystem, they, they, are, they play a role. They play a very important role. They, are, role. they are creating some kind of container. They are guiding some kind of process. But they really are stepping out of the center, right? They are becoming one other node in a network of learners in a setting. And they, as I say, they play an important role. But the, the real learning is happening in these networks among young people interacting with each other, right, in, around some kind of substance. Um, so, so they become the the the, the teacher take becomes a smaller voice, um, and not a not a voice that's in the center of the space, and uh, and the dynamic is one of interaction among learners, nodes and networks, right, rather than a sort of triangular, top down, unilateral, you know, back and forth between teacher and individual student. Um, the third idea. I have about that is that technology is an opportunity and not a solution, right? It is a it is a tool that can be used by learners, by teachers, by people who are creating learning environments um, to expand the, the the access to information beyond thinking of the teacher as the sole source or the textbook as the sole source of information. Um, but it can be as it can be misused. It can be terrible. Like there's a, a ton of really, really bad um, curriculum um, online or ways of sort of structuring student learning online. Um, and then there's some really horrible information, right? We know there's horrible information um, that's online as well. So the technology question is really around how do we how do we use technology in a skillful way as a part of expanding the learning environment? So the third point really for me is. Um, in what ways are we expanding beyond the walls of the classroom, beyond the 55-minute 
period, beyond the, the seven period day, beyond the batch processing of students, you know, grade four, grade five, grade six, grade seven. Um, in what ways are we expanding beyond all of that to say, to, to create a much bigger um, arena within which learning is, is, can happen, right? So that's the, the third point for me. And then the fourth thing has to do with this notion of how do we um, really um, emancipate ourselves from the traditional bureaucratic model of education? Um, because it, 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 there is nothing about the way we've structured education since the 19th century that has anything to do with what we know about learning. <laughs> it just doesn't, there's no connection at all. Like we have organized um, um, schooling in the, in, in the West, in the United States, in Western countries, um, around a model that was developed as a way of organizing society by, by white people in Britain in, in a way that they could use it to prove that their view of the world was superior to the other cultures. And, and so it's both mechanistic, it's hyper-rational, it's, it's um, deterministic, it's linear, um, it, um, it judges, it sorts, it batch processes, like all of these are part of, and I, I just, I strongly believe these are what we, what we now can call white supremacy culture. You know, that's, it's perfectionism, it's individ, hyper-individualism, it's scarcity mentality, all of those things, right, are built into this way of organizing um, school. And none of those are really about how we support individuals and groups of young people to develop fully as capable citizens, as, as thoughtful people, as joyful people, as, you know. And so one more piece about that. I, you know, we've been doing a lot of work with folks in British Columbia who are way ahead of the United States in terms of, of, of lots of things, but one of them is the, their view of how we need to, what they call decolonize the educational system. So it's not just like, um, it's not just re um, reconciliation. It's like, no, it's, it, we really have to decolonize the system completely, right? There's so many other ways of thinking about learning. And I think that's what we are, that's what we have to do. We have to recognize that the structures that we have in place are a colonial um, um, artifact and it, it's not serving anybody anymore. So that, that's a big project, but that, I think an important one for us to take on. And the, the history of decolonization, I mean, it, it, in the term that we, we think of uh, in, in historical terms has, has been a long, bloody process, uh, decolonizing uh, um, Africa, Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera. It, the system, um, as it is, as you talk about white supremacy, the issue is those people who think about white supremacy think that white people are superior. And, and, and those mental models are going to be very, very deeply entrenched. And, and it serves them to think this because it helps just reinforce the power structures and, of course, their, their comfort and so forth. If schools, and, and, and by school I mean in the larger sense, um, the, the larger um, complex of schools, as, as a political entity, as a bureaucratic entity, it's, it's tremendously difficult to decolonize given that the power structure, the people who have made it to the top have benefited from the system. And they will say, well, you know, my, my education at, at such and such school, at Ivy League or wherever it is, has, has done wonderful things for the world. Just look at me, I'm, I'm here. Where do we work on in the core, on the periphery, how does that conversation change to really take away these power structures, which again, if we look at it in historical terms, is nothing less than revolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is revolution. 
Um, I, I have to look at it in a kind of fractal way, which is to say that, uh, and I have to look at it in the kind of way that Margaret Wheatley would, which is to say, let's look for, let's as leaders, let's as transformational, let's as, as emancipatory leaders, look for where it's already happening. Uh, because it is, right? There are, even though, you know, often t teachers who see themselves as transformational agents are also horrified to find out when they are actually reproducing the system that they're trying to transform in the way that they act. And, but people are, you know, people can be aware of that. So let's assume that there are people, um, whether it's young people or teachers or people in political um, positions or community member, community organizations, that there are people who are already transforming the system in, in small ways, whether it's, like I said, about a teacher decentering herself in the classroom or um, um, creating spaces that are not about sorting, um, you know, the better from the worse, um, spaces where there is agency and empowerment happening for young people. And, and um, in the same way that we were talking a little bit earlier about this notion of, the, of nodes and networks, like the innovation space that, we're, that we are talking about is one of nodes of practice like that lifted up and connected in networks so that they they become a little bit like you know the you know the um, the idea of guerrilla gardeners, you know in a in you have a community and it might be a sort of on the verge. It's a community that could either become it could it could degenerate into a real mess or it could become a really nice community. And um, so one thing that can happen is like there are these small groups of people who go around and they find little tiny open spaces and they plant gardens in them. And when they do that. Other people start to notice and say, oh, this is nice. This looks better. Like, I'm going to pick up some trash in my yard. And, you know, so you have this sort of web of people who are doing something that are interspersed throughout a community. And um, by being connected together, they create a, a network of innovation that moves the system in a certain direction. Right? You can also, you know, have somebody who leaves a mattress on the street. And then um, two days later, there's somebody sleeping on it. And three days later, there's piles of garbage there. And, you know, then people are dumping all kinds of stuff. And that can, that, those kinds of pockets can move a neighborhood in the, in the opposite direction. So I think one of the things that we have a responsibility to do if we believe in this kind of transformation is to look for where um, interesting um, transformational practices happening, name it, lift it up, connect people together who are doing that practice, give them the space and the time to work with each other and learn and develop the same way I was describing earlier, iteratively through trial and error, right? Um, and sort of create a guiding container with a bigger vision that moves that in the direction of transformation. Um, that seems to me like a much easier, um, uh, more manageable way to think about transformation than to say, oh, we've got this massive system, what are we gonna do to like transform it? It's like, the Titanic only worse, right? Um, the, the other part of that that I think is really powerful is that we, that we have to be realistic about um, the ways in which all of the parts of the existing system interact to reinforce each other, right? And I, theoretically, we, you know, the people who talk about systems talk about um, open systems um, that use inputs of energy in and, and sort of existing patterns and processes and structures to recreate the existing system. 
and then excrete anything that doesn't help with that process, right? And um, um, a couple of greasy guys back in the 80s named Majorana and Varela called that autopoiesis, the self-recreating of, of a system, right? And we have to recognize that, that the system that we're talking about is that, right? It is very good at reproducing itself and it is very good at excreting any energy that doesn't keep it moving in the direction that it's already headed in. Um, so, so we have to be kind of like the really gardeners in that system, <laughs> you know, and start placing examples of, of transformational work in a way that they can connect together and, and slowly seed transformation. Um, and we have to be willing to make ourselves aware of the ways in which what we're doing is maybe reproducing that existing system and start to change those as well. Uh, I don't think it's easy work. <laughs> And one of the things that, that uh, the image of, of grail gardening is, of course, every different pot of land will look different. And rather than changing a system, which actually is going back to this idea of standardization, homogenization, we're going to do one thing for everyone. This allows these nodes to um, make it be more context-based, be more place-based, whatever, whatever that is, that essence is, and take, take what works and, and then adjust for, for the locality. Yeah, you know, Michael Fallon is one of my sort of heroes of the change work in education going back many decades and way back in the early 90s one of the things he said was that all change is local right and i still believe like local can means really local it means like in in me <laughs> in my interaction with a, a group of, of people in their interactions with their their groups of people um the the process of making sense and making meaning together and practicing things and re and iterating those practices is a very local process, right? And one of the things that we talk also a lot about on the podcast and on the blog is um, is, is what will happen to uh, local communities in terms of thinking about the planet, how it's burning up, and how we have to, to work on circular economies. And not necessarily going in that direction, but you bring up fractals, and you brought up your, your experience in Outward Bound and, 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 and also nature. I, I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit and, and, and just ask a, a, such a, a huge open question that, you know, we'll, we'll have to pick one string out of it, but what, what could we learn from nature? What could we learn from the way nature organizes itself to think about some of the, uh, the ecosystems of, of, uh, of education and learning? It's a big question. I get it, but maybe there's something here that's on your mind. Um, can I tell a little story about that? Um, so my, my wife and I like to walk. I don't know if you saw, um, a recent blog about walking in Scotland, but, um, um, several years ago, we did this very long walk in Northwest Scotland called the Cape Wrath Trail. It's 230 miles and um, a good percentage of it is on sort of existing trails. But as you get farther up into the, into the glens, the trails tend to peter out into bog and then to rocky ridges. And, and um, uh, so it's, it's a kind of a make piece your way through this thing. <laughs> um, and when we first started out on this walk, we noticed that in many of the glens lower down, there were these beautiful dark green. I mean, the glens are these beautiful sort of gray green heathers and heaths and, and sedges and, you know, bog plants and more plants. But in, in the lower parts of these glens, there are these dark spruce forests. And, and we just thought they were gorgeous. You know, you could see the spruce forest and then the, the sort of lighter green of the glen all around and the reaches all around. Um, uh, and 
we were walking on the second, third day of this trip, and we came around a, a bend in the trail, and then spread out in front of us was just this totally trashed, decimated um, piece of landscape where big old logging machines had like literally ripped the trees out of the ground and shredded the bark off of them and the limbs and piled up everything up in piles. And it was, it was, it was very tortured looking ground, you know, because when you take the, the, the green stuff off of a bog, it's pretty messy. <laughs> it's really messy. And, and we were kind of horrified and we we're like, why would they clear cut these beautiful spruce forests? And then we walked on a little further and came to our, our um, stone, little stone hut we were going to stay in for the night. And right outside it was one of these forests. And we walked into the forest just to take a look. And we noticed that all of these trees were planted in straight rows, right? Absolutely straight rows. And they were planted about three or four feet apart. And the rows were about four feet apart. Um, and there was nothing living underneath these trees. The ground was absolutely dead. There were no insects, there were no animals, there were no birds, there was no sound. It was just dead looking. And there, and there were branches falling off the trees that looked unhealthy. And we, and we were like, why in the world? These were clearly planted here, right? And so we asked and people said, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the landscape in Scotland used to be for this very complex, beautiful forest. And it was deforested by overpopulation 200 or so years ago, 300 years ago. And um, after World War I, the, the British were worried that next time there was a war, they wouldn't have enough lumber to build the things they needed. And there was unemployment in Northern Scotland. And so they encouraged people to go out and plant these industrial forests to provide wood for the next war. Um, um, they're no longer useful economically. Um, and we've discovered that they're very unhealthy environments. And so we're clear cutting those because they just, they're not even native. They were, they were spruce from, Norway. <laughs> so we're like, we don't need those industrial forests anymore. Um, and instead, we're encouraging landowners to what they call rewild the landscape. And so that, in, that involves not really planting things, but encouraging the, the, the existing land to grow back to the forests that had existed a long time ago. And those forests are very complex. They're biodiverse. There's birds and insects and weeds and flowers and bushes and trees and they eventually grow up to a, a, a climax forest of uh, Scots pine and rowan trees and it's they're beautiful. One problem um, when they start to grow there's also an overpopulation of deer and the deer eat them back to the ground. So they have to build these tall deer proof fences around the areas that they want to rewild and then that keeps the deer away and the forest can slowly grow back. So why am I telling this story? Because we've done the same thing with our classrooms. We've created industrial classrooms where kids sit in rows. They never interact with each other. There's no life happening. Um, they're there for some kind of industrial purpose. We don't know. <laughs> right? you know? <laughs> and it's a dead space. It's an unhealthy space. Right. So what? So what? So I think there's a metaphor here about rewilding the learning space, um, and the natural world is is the best place to see where when you create a biodiverse system and let things interact in sort of natural ways, you get beauty and you get you get gorgeous sound and you get this interesting ways in which species interact with each other. I mean, 
the, the, the stuff about how trees will share resources with each other, even if they're not the same species, is fascinating, right? The, the ways in which um, mycelium grow underneath the surface of the, the forest floor and, and move information and resources around, totally fascinating. So to me, that, that's the, sorry about the long story, but that's the, the, the metaphor for me that I think is really helpful for us. How are we rewilding the learning environment for young people and for adults. And I learned yesterday or two days ago that an aspen grove has one root structure. Same plant. It's, it's the same plant spread over a, a massive amount of land. Well, redwood, redwood trees are the same way. They, there are very few redwoods that propagate from seeds. Mostly they grow up around the base of the mother tree, which is why you have these beautiful fairy rings in redwood forests. Right? If we look at it then in the terms of fractals that you brought up, of course, we need to rewild ourselves. <laughs> yes, we do. Right, the biodiversity inside us, as well as our connection with nature, understanding this, appreciate this wonder uh, uh, within nature. Yeah, and, and stop seeing ourselves as individuals and start seeing ourselves as part of collect collectivities. And, um, and the, more bi the more diversity there is in those collectivities, the more strength the more resilience, the more thriving that can happen, the more joy, right? And, and that balance that nature brings when there is biodiversity. So it's a little bit too much over here, it balances out somehow over there. Very dynamic, it's very dynamic. I mean, you walk in a forest, there's things living and there's things dying. There's things that are young and things that are old. There's things that are like moving and very quickly and things that are moving very slow. I mean, it's just like that, that biodiversity is a really, essential aspect of things in the, the, and we have that within us, right? You know, there's some, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's some huge percentage of the mass inside us is not our DNA. <laughs> you know, it's, it's other kinds of things entirely. Well, listen, um, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. The first one is, what are you reading right now? Um, so I'm a huge fan, I think you saw from my blog, of communities of practice as a way of, as a sort of core way of recreating human learning spaces and workspaces. And the, there are two people, uh, one of whose work I've been following for years, which is Etienne Wenger. Um, and he did a lot of work with Gene Lave back in the late 80s, early 90s around social learning theory. Um, and then he wrote one of the first books on communities of practice. But he then recently, in recent years has been together with a woman named Beverly Trainer, And so they're now Etienne and Beverly Wenger Trainer. And they have uh, written a book called Learning to Make a Difference, Value Creation in Social Learning Spaces. And it is spectacular because it's, it, it goes very deeply into the complexities of what happens in, in really healthy social learning spaces um, and the developmental process of social learning spaces and the kind of value that's created at different phases of the work. And since we have so much trouble with measurement in education, um, I'm particularly interested in looking at other ways that people look at, at what's of value and capture that value and tell the stories of that value. And this book is, is completely full of that kind of learning. But if I go back a few years, um, one of the books that's been most influential in my thinking about the work that I'm doing is uh, Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy. Um, Adrienne Marie Brown is Black. Um, lesbian movement organizer from Detroit, 
Um, and she wrote a book about strategy that is the most radically different book about strategy that I had ever seen at the time that I read it. It's written in a very different voice from the traditional white male strategy book, right? Like, like um, what's the one that everybody reads in graduate school? Um, uh, yeah, no Titi. Stra st managing strategic change, very technical, rational. <laughs> this is a book that's written in a, you know, a whole different worldview, and and it, and her writing comes a lot out of. She's very influenced by um, Octavia Butler. Um, you know if you know who she is, but uh, um, she's a near future dystopian science fiction writer. Most of her work was written in the nineties, um, and uh, haunt scarily prescient. <laughs> she in her writing, but um, Adrienne Marie Brown takes a lot of her ideas and puts them into practice in terms of thinking about strategy. And she uses some of the same language around um, complex systems um, that, that we've been talking about. Um, and I mean, of course, Margaret Wheatley still, I, I go back to her work all the time. Um, Jean Russell wrote two books that I love. One is called um, Thrivability, and the other is called Cultivating Flows. And the Cultivating Flows book especially talks about um, new ways of thinking about new sort of new ways of thinking about the building blocks of organization. I think she influenced my work in, in thinking about the alternatives to a bureaucratic education system that are that I described in that in that blog. Wonderful. Yeah, we're trying to build our library um, and, and finding the best ways just to ask people. I mean, why, why reinvent the wheel? Um, so this is fantastic. And, and one of the things we didn't talk about, and maybe, you know, we, we just keep this, uh, this thought hanging out there is this idea of, uh, uh, of what systems value. And if you change what they value, that's a, a, a fantastic way of rethink, redesigning the system, or at least, you know, one entry point into that. Um, last question, um, and it's a bit the, um, well, really, it's the what's on your mind, what's, what's future work for you, what, what are the things that you're grappling with, um, and, and what's on the horizon? I don't have any more rocks, so the wall, I think, is complete. <laughs> um, but there's always more gardening to do, right, um, or more things to set out and see how they interact with other plants. Um, you know, I'm the co-director for the Deeper Learning Dozen, and that's 12 um, school district senior leadership teams across North America that are committed to um, system change in relation to equity and deeper learning. And um, through throughout COVID, I think the big lesson for us with those districts has been um, how do we create healing spaces um, how do we use disruption to help us create healing spaces where people can really genuinely build um, the kind of trusting relationships that make um, a real learning community possible, right? And um, so the question is not like, how do we respond to COVID? It is that, but it's like COVID is only one of many, you know, um, pandemics that we're living in, climate disaster, you know, climate collapse. Um, um, racism, um, systemic and historical racism, um, current sort of economic, you know, huge economic inequalities that are the result of extractive capitalism. Um, so I, so working with school districts, um, 
I think the challenge is, is like, how do you make these big problems um, manageable by young people um, in ways that they feel like they understand the, the ways in which they are situated within these larger systems, but they also understand the ways in which they can be actors, um, agents of change in those agents of transformation in those systems. And I'm more committed to that than I ever have been. Um, and because of the, no the notion of fractals, I'm, my feeling is like if you can't create a system wherein um, young people can act in that system as change agents, they're never going to be able to be change agents in the in the broader society, right? So they have to be that now, and that means you have to be that now, and that means that it doesn't matter what the disruption that you're in currently, you you still have, as you said, these values that should be guiding your actions. So, how do we have the conversation with people who? Uh, have grown up in bureaucracy and are our leaders in bureaucracy, but are, who are very uncomfortable with that status quo, how do you have the conversation where they can tackle these really complex ideas and find a, a way to be transformational in their day-to-day -day interactions with each other, in their policy decision-making, in their, in their um, way that they work with young people, you know? Um, that, that to me is the, is the work right now for, for me. Um, uh, and you know, I'm planning a trip to the Pyrenees for this summer. So, um, thinking about 44 days of walking from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean with my wife Jessica. Um, so that's a kind of that's on my mind as well. Right? <laughs> and and you know, oddly, I don't see those as really that different. They're similar in my thinking, the one in, you know, there's so many, um, there are so many things that happen to you when you go off on a long walk um, uh, that both give you the opportunity to enact the, the values that you believe in and also give you metaphors for, for bringing back to the, to the um, more literal work that you're doing. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is fun. I hope you feel like you've gotten some this has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Thanks so much for listening. We will have an episode out very soon, uh, and we have some exciting guests where we try to mix the voices that come to the table to think about how we can go beyond school, how we can think about designing and redesigning living systems for learning beyond what we know now as school. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. Check out www.intrepidnews.com. And we look forward to your comments. Uh, check us out on LinkedIn as well. And talk to you soon. Bye.